Hi, I'm Milton Davis, and you're listening to Microphones of Madness. Howdy. Howdy, man. Howdy, y'all. It's uh, Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there, Steve. <laughs> Bing! And today we're talking... Edge of Sundown, a uh, Western horror anthology published by Chaosium and edited by Kevin Ross and Brian M. Sammons. Ah, our old friend Brian Sammons. Yes, Brian Sammons does a lot of anthology work. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Enough to keep this show on the air. That's I know. We sure. definitely read our share of Salmon's stuff. Salmon's. As we said in the intro, Edge of Sundown is a uh, horror western anthology, a weird west sort of thing. Um, this was this is a little bit older. I think it goes back to. Uh, Couple of years ago, something like that. Yeah, it's uh, I want to say 2012, oh, 2015. Yeah, a couple of years, a couple of years. I thought it was older for some reason. Yeah, well, time flies when you're having fun. That's true. Um, main reason we're covering it is because the weird western or western horror is not something that uh comes up very often, and we thought it would be a refreshing change of pace to, to change it up some. Um, you know, we did a lot, we've done a lot of like Lovecraftian type of stuff. We had our, uh, sword and soul back at the beginning of the year. And now we're, uh, getting into the old West and seeing what we can, uh, scrape out of the bottom of the bean bucket. More beans, Mr. Taggart. Absolutely. I think you boys have had enough. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I'm I'm going to disclaimer that I am not a big fan of westerns. Um, I don't particularly like watching them, and the uh, Blazing Saddles is my speed for westerns. Um, so um, I like some, some of the Robert E. Howard Weird West stuff that he right. wrote, right. Uh, but it, it's my familiarity with the genre as a whole is lacking. It's just just so take anything I say with a grain of salt. Well, I mean, you know, the introduction, the, the genre itself of the weird Western is a little bit uh, spotty since from, from its beginnings uh, through the modern era. We had, uh, I think Lansdale's Jonah Hex stories were uh, mentioned in the introduction. Yeah. And then you have the dark tower, which I did enjoy. Right. Which, uh, oh, Two Gun Mojo was actually pretty good. I enjoyed that. The uh, DC pushed, uh, published the motion comic version of it on their YouTube channel. Yeah, and it, it seems like a lot of these Weird West um, found a home in, in comic books mm-hmm. more, more than in prose. Yeah. Like you have like Vigilante, um, Jonah Hex. Ghost Rider, Ghost Rider, that kind of stuff, uh, it, rather than um, it making its way into into you know fiction 
know. Yeah, it pops up periodically. Um, the introduction is pretty much a good uh, bibliography for the history of the weird Western. So if you pick up this book, definitely uh, take some notes out of the uh, introduction. More notes than I did. Yeah. Hey, would you would you consider something like um, Pale Rider a weird West story? Mm, I don't really know if you could really call it a weird West story. I mean, you know, the I don't think there's much by way of the supernatural element there. Well, isn't the whole premise that he he came back from the dead to uh, to avenge himself on that town that let him hang? Mm. Yeah, it's been a while since I watched that movie, so I'd have to watch it again and get back to you on that. Um, I do remember I've recently watched a Wesley Snipes movie called Gallo Walkers, which was a Western horror. Revenge is a big thing in 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 that genre, and so far in the first five stories we've read, revenge is almost the central theme of at least four of them. Uh, yeah, it certainly is. Uh, one, yes, two, yes, three, yes, um, four, yes. Yeah, all of them actually. All, all right, <laughs> it's it's all of them. All right, well, we'll get into it. Uh, let's start off with the first story in the book, The Claw Spurs by John Shirley. Um, this was, in my mind, the perfect way to open in this book. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward. It plays with the trope. You've got a, a bunch of cow pokes sitting around a campfire. You know, the moon is creepy and tinged with red and... And one of the old hands starts telling a story, and, yes. and then we're we're thrown into madness from there, right? And and it's kind of yeah, it's definitely a revenge story. Guy, his his dad is kind of a ornery cuss and ends up being killed <clears throat> over a uh, gambling debt, mm-hmm. and uh, his son seeking revenge uh, against the the man who did it has to make a pact with an unsavory being to get it done because he's not he's young and, and he's not a, he's not a much of a killer no get his ass whipped right and uh yeah here we have really kind of that that ghost writer trope you know the mysterious figure uh you know cold-blooded killer supernatural yeah and and really uh, he explains it to the main character that he is kind of a spirit of vengeance. Yeah, well, it's it's almost like uh, it reminded me a lot of um, Garth Ennis's uh, Saint of Killers from Preacher, mm-hmm. from actual Preacher, not the series of Preacher. Right. Yeah, it had that kind of element, and um, then we turn. It turns out that uh, that legacy, it's like the cost of of vengeance, is that the young man who swore it, you know, summoned this creature now must become that creature. Right. And it, it doesn't, it, it was implied that it wasn't just, it wasn't everyone. There was something special about the young man mm-hmm. that made it possible for him to take over. Maybe it was because he was innocent. Um, Maybe it was something to do with the way the moon was. Yeah, it could have been the moon. Um, but yeah, so he, his the price for his vengeance um, was doing the job himself. 
Right. And I love the big reveal. And this, this since this book is two years old, we're going to kind of spoil it. The big reveal of uh, back a few months ago, some uh, cowboys had gotten gone into town and were being rowdy and killed somebody they shouldn't have. Yeah, it's definitely a uh, like a spawn moment. Right. And then he just like <laughs> boom, 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 unleashes bloody vengeance upon them. Yeah, it, it now if I were one of those cowpokes listening to this story under the moon that they had, I'd be a little freaked out and might have made an excuse to leave. Uh yeah, provided that uh I was one of the people responsible, you know, but then again, it's one of those things where you know you try to grasp the the illusion of innocence or the delusion of innocence until the very end. It's like I had nothing. I weren't my fault. Right. weren't my fault. I had nothing to do with it. And you know, because you try to go, you've pretty much demonstrated your guilt. And by yourself is never where you want to be in that type of situation. <laughs> yeah, well, you're kind of fucked either way. Yep. But uh, yeah, this one, like I said, it was the perfect opening to the book. It, it just really it, it felt classic. Uh, the landscape, the 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 ambiance, and then even even to a point of the dialogue, kind of threw you into it because not a lot of the other writers use that kind of colloquial cowboy talk. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely immersed you or me, mm-hmm. it immersed me. Um, yeah, yeah, and you're right. He hit a lot of Western tropes that you think of when you think of Westerns. You know, you're on the on the dusty trail, the lone cowpoke, mm-hmm. you know, just hired on to help with this particular run. You know, um, sitting around the campfire with coffee and hardtack, and yeah, you had you had you know gambling, um, welching on gambling debts, gunplay. Um, you know, this could have been uh, a early period Grateful Dead song, <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 or Johnny Cash song. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the Grateful Dead one at one point they did all these old Troubadour songs, mm-hmm. and and they're all you know they've got like that plot of you know me and my uncle got involved in, in a in a card game. They accused him of cheating. So I grabbed the money while they were duking it out and left my uncle and went to Mexico. <laughs> you know, it's got that feel to it. You can almost right. feel the tumbleweed going down the, the plane while this is all happening. Yeah. So, so yeah, great opening to the book. We were both of us just sucked right in. In fact, uh, I had turned went to YouTube and uh, turned on like one of those hour of epic western music <laughs> kind of thing and uh i was the one my one of my bosses had come in and he had like uh what he called hunter's beef which is like uh beef that had been like spiced and seasoned like jerky but boiled instead of dehydrated so it was like i had this big hunk of meat and a cup of coffee and cowboy music going on the on the speakers and I was reading this. So so almost like Fallout yeah. Vegas. Yeah, kinda, kinda. You know, without the haywire robots and, and uh naked bears. 
All right. So next up on the list is uh, Cemetery Man by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. Apologies for my terrible accent. Um, Now, this one is is set in Mexico during the Mexican Revolution. Um, And it goes a little bit more into a a weird science kind of uh, vibe rather yeah. than the, than a supernatural. Yeah. It's kind of like uh Herbert West in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Well, Herbert West does show up towards but, the end. Yes, he's, he's mentioned. He's, yeah. He's, he gets a shout out. Um, what we have is we have a science of uh, the revolutionaries are, are fighting and the, uh, the federal troops. Federales. Um, are using in their armies, uh, revived corpses who are brutally savage, brutally savage and, and damn near unkillable. Right. Well, cause they're already, they're already dead. And, and even then they get killed and they're brought back again. And we have uh, a young woman who is, who is injured in, in a fight and she wakes up. She was gut shot. She was gut shot. And she she wakes up in the hands, essentially, of the cemetery man. Yes. Now, it's my understanding that in a Western, when someone is gut shot, and I know this from reading Wolverine, because Wolverine gets gut shot a lot, um, you're pretty much fucked. It's a slow death. You will slowly bleed out and die, unless you're Wolverine, and then you'll slowly Just recover. Heal. Right. And guest star and eight more comics. And, it takes longer because, you know, it's gut shot. It hurts. Right. But and it, either way, it sucks to be gut shot. And so she's gut shot, and she was captured by the man who's responsible for all this. He's not a secret. She knows who he is as soon as she wakes up. Yep. Uh, everybody knows who he is. He's, he's like, uh, the most... Uh, out in the open, quote unquote, supervillain <laughs> around. Right. Everybody knows who he is. He he strikes fear into the heart of the rebels. Yes, he does because he's the man responsible for all the uh, the the resurrected. They right. Well, and then you know your regiment gets uh, overrun by Federalis, and you're dead. You can't get them all, and. The next time you clash, your best buddy is ripping your throat out. Yep. So yeah, he's he's definitely to be feared and, and not necessarily respected. Well, reviled. Yes, definitely reviled. So yeah, so she wakes up and uh, he he keeps on he he's nursing her back to health for some reason. Yeah, so he and he, he keeps on giving her shots for her pain, and he he you know there's a little bit of uh, explanation on this. That's where you find out the the scene. You know, you're you're during the revolution, all that kind of great stuff. Mm-hmm. What her background is, how she fits in with the rebels. Yep, find out all of that stuff, and you also find out the dark secret of the resurrected, how he does it. And he does it by implanting a, uh, genetically altered insect into people's skin 
and it burrows into their brain and takes up residence and it essentially makes them immortal. Right. So yeah, it's a variation on the, uh, like the zombie fungus mm-hmm. kind of thing. Right. The parasite type of, uh, you know, get it into you and yeah, you're dead, but she's a little bit different because, uh, she has the insect, uh, inserted into her brain while she's near death, but it's not, it's, it's an, it, she's succumbing to injuries that can be easily treated to save her life. Right. And she, and she has a, uh, she has a, a modified strain, if I if I recall correctly. Yes, he's, yes. Trying, he's trying to improve on this so that you can have. Essentially, he's trying to make super soldiers. Right, right. He wants them to keep their human intelligence. He wants to keep their decision making faculties, but yet make them stronger, faster, right. more resilient to injury, uh, and, faster to heal, and enthralled to him. And in, of course, enthralled to him. And and actually, that last part, um, he succeeds in. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's the one thing that he actually has succeeded in on all the variations of this this thing is that none of the resurrected can hurt him, even right. though they may want to. Right. Right. And turns out that much like Herbert West, uh, he's looking for fresher subjects. Right. Always looking for fresher subjects. Right now, he is not the ultimate villain. Um, he he is very cowed by his superiors, mm-hmm. who, are, who are who apparently you know there is another guy who's also had success with the same type of super soldier resurrected dead project, and this, <laughs> but the that. superiors, right? According to according to our the cemetery man, right. he's just a hack. He's a hack. He's not a scientist. He's a hack. <laughs> right. And the superiors uh, want them to join forces and create the ultimate super soldier. Meanwhile, uh, Pancho Villa's revolutionaries uh, have contacted a, a fellow that nobody's ever heard of named Dr. Herbert West. Right. So you, you have like this uh, reanimation um, arms race. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is that is going on in the yeah. background of all of this, mm-hmm. and yeah, it actually it 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 you know not only just the setting because we don't get to visit Mexico very often. I mean, you know, outside of you know, I'm crossing the border to get away. You know, Butch Cassidy and Sundance. No, they went to South America, um, but you never really get you know a a a Western much in the in the United States that features all Mexican characters. It's always, you know, at least one American or something across the border yeah. gets involved. Well, it's my understanding. All the Westerns I've ever seen that um, Mexicans are, are treated poorly. Uh, very. By, by the producers. If you want yes. to talk about misrepresentation, there you go. Oh yeah, I mean the western itself is uh, probably one of the most racist genres just because the tropes you know, the Mexicans are treated poorly, Native Americans are treated poorly. Um pretty much everybody but your, you know, white protagonist from the Midwest usually 
is is treated as inferior and right. you know you have all your heroes so you have that problematic element to it uh and it was nice that that sylvia's story one features so prominently in the book it's the second story you read and yeah it's it's just really well done uh, there's a lot of you know like like we said the science fiction element to it to make it weird rather than relying on supernatural horror um uh, supernatural horror this is more of a mad science kind of horror yeah because you're still dealing with you know still weird zombies part of that weird kind of and and that personal horror of you know essentially being awake and being one of them as well right and slowly realizing that you know um i think she pretty much pieces it together after the reader does Mm -hmm. so you get that nice little gap of oh i know what's going on and then her realizing what's going on yes it builds up a lot of tension um which, which helps to drive the story ahead mm-hmm. and and just to just to plug sylvia a little bit more uh this story is also featured in her collection uh this strange way of dying which is an excellent book itself so if you don't get this book you can at least read that story in sylvia's book and it's exactly the same. You know, there, I don't think there were any edits done in between versions. Um, yeah. So either way, you can still get this excellent story, regardless of which direction you go. Uh, the third story on the list is Jiangxi in Chinatown by Kelda Critch. Uh, now, here we have, uh, once again, a story that doesn't center on you know, cow pokes. No, this is a uh, San Francisco, San Francisco during town. bustling. Yeah. Main city. Yeah. Dur- during the gold rush era, during the gold rush era, you had the, the Chinese coming in as immigrants for, uh, you know, they're there to seek gold. They get the jobs working on the railroads. Um, just this, that, that period of a huge upswing in Chinese immigration right. to the United States. Um, our main characters are actually sorcerers. Yes. So um, you get the weird right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not a lot of buildup. They, they, they're coming in and they are, they are sorcerers. They are sorcerers, but they're on a side quest. This right, is, but, but they're like, uh, they're like Dr. Strange sorcerers. Mm-hmm. They're, they're definitely not like ritual Gandalfy people. Right. They're definitely, Surfing the, the planes and fighting evil on different planes of existence. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And then, you know, but they're on a mission of revenge, too, because they're there to find their uh, younger sister. Well, it's uh, the, niece. the sorcerer is a brother and sister. It's her yeah. daughter and his niece. Mm-hmm. Um, which, at which when I realized that while we were reading it, I breathed a sigh of relief because I really didn't want the story to go there and it didn't <laughs> right um so yeah we uh we find out that uh the daughter slash niece is one of the poor unfortunate people who was sold into the brothels yes so it, it seems like because they're so busy um fighting dormomo or whatever um, in, in the service of the earth spirit 
that uh, they neglect their their regular life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she is sold a, without their knowledge at right. some, like five years ago. And they've spent the past five years tracking her down mm-hmm. between missions. And they finally tracked her down. Um, the and it's mother- the worst possible fate. Oh yeah, yeah. Because not only she's she's reaching the the daughter is reaching the end of her usefulness as a prostitute. Uh, she's also fallen ill. Um, her mind is going. Yeah, she's addicted to opium. She's addicted to opium, and and they they treat these these girls um, very poorly. No, uh, they're, they're chained in a room, more mm-hmm. or less. And when when their time is up, they just stick them in a room and and have them hang themselves. Right. And our sorcerers find her. Uh, they go through the entire scam of, uh, you know, buying the time with her and stuff like that, trying to make it look all on the up and up. Uh, yeah, and they, perform they, a ritual. They too. don't come in guns blazing. They do it very like on the DL, to, mm-hmm. I guess, to keep their anonymity. Well, that, and you know, they're, there's sorcerers. There's there's drawbacks to just unleashing your magic right there out in the open like that. Right. So yeah. So they 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 buy time with her. They um, ingratiate themselves with Madam Sing Song, mm-hmm. who is the villain of the piece. She's the Madam. Yes. Of the brothel. And she is very. It, it it's she's a great villain uh, because mm-hmm. where they represent. Um, tradition, the sorcerers were there, you know, proud Chinese tradition of sorcery and defending um, China and humanity from these dark forces. She is uh, a figure that has just succumbed to the worst um, possible depths of Westernization. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, she, she is, you know, not only has she sold her people, but she sold herself. Um, she has become a caricature of Chinese in the West mm-hmm. to the point where her, she takes her name as Sing Song. And she says, Oh, it's because everybody says that the way I speak is very, very melodious. And the sorcerers are going, no, they're, they're making fun of you. <laughs> right. Right. And she, you know, she's tries to play up that she's a society type. She's like, Oh, I have all the best people come to my parties. Right and things like this, um, and maybe she does, maybe she doesn't. We we don't know. We didn't get to, we don't get to see that right aspect. I would um, say probably not. I'd say the very best people are you know miners out on the weekend kind of thing, people visiting the town. You know, maybe well, maybe an official with like exotic tastes or something, but not. I wouldn't say she gets all the best people. Well, she probably gets like, you know, uh, your crime lords. That's yeah. You know, she gets, she gets scum and villainy and and it's all of these, you know, wealthy crime lords because, you know, you have to, you're thinking of turn in terms of, you know, there's, there's street criminals um, who aren't rolling in dough. And then you have these people who make their money off of these, you know, you, you know, uh, a shipping magnate who right. makes all of his money off of bringing the prostitutes in. Right. The smugglers. 
Drug dealers. Smugglers, drug dealers, uh, organized crime, crooked politicians. You know, on the surface, you know, they come in and they're dressed in their finest clothes and they have lots of money. So you would appear you're in high society. Right. But you're really amongst the scum of the earth. Right. So they they do a number on her. (laughs) Right, right. Um, But... It's interesting how they, well, she, the, the woman has to give up her role as um, a sorceress mm-hmm. um, to rescue her daughter because her daughter is so far gone that without divine intervention, mm-hmm. um, no matter what they do, she would not be well. Right. Right. So she, she makes a, a bargain with um, it's the earth, the earth spirit, the ultimate earth spirit. Um, that she'll give up her position, for, forego her immortality and her powers to save her daughter. Right. And she does. And that all is part of the plan as well, as the symbol of her sacrifice is transformed into a gift for Madame Sing Song, um, who takes it with much greed and, and, and very uh, covetous glances. Because it's a it's a almost a fist sized piece of jade. Yeah, it's a it's, a, it's some uh, it's some expensive shit. Yep, and she puts it. But I, I really one of the things I did enjoy was you know he couldn't get into the house because she had protective wards and he was there to do her harm. Right. So he had to be invited into the house. Yes. Which is And she had to deliberately accept the gift. Right. But it wasn't hard for him to manipulate her at all. No, no. Because, and and he knew what he was doing when he came in. And it's like, oh, may I come in? Yes, you may come in. You know, just using the general politeness of society as as his way of uh, taking care of business rather than out and out manipulating. Right. Now, it, interestingly enough, and I don't know if this was um, done on purpose. If it was, it was brilliant. If not, you lucked out, man. <laughs> um, these are the exact same things that your Western vampire has to go through mm-hmm. with their victims. You have to be, they have to be invited in. They have to, you know, they have to have permission, lots of mm-hmm. permission. And uh, obviously the Zhangxi are... Um, a Chinese version of a vampire. Yes. Yes. Now, um, also it, it, it plays into the, uh, ritualistic society of the Chinese. Confucianism is very strict. Um, and, and everyone has their place in society and everyone in that place is expected to act with a certain degree of decorum. And it's no different from Madam Sing Song is that, yes, she's trying really hard to be Western and, and partaking of this Western materialistic type of lifestyle. <clears throat> Excuse me. But and that's where our sorcerer kind of takes advantage of it is that she's still Chinese. Right. And, no matter how you know, far she's fallen, you know, she right. still has that in her. I mean, and it makes sense because, you know. That's how you grow up. That's your culture. Mm-hmm. That, that's, you know, it's going to be very deep inside of you. 
And so what happens is that um, while this is going on, the sister is tending to her daughter uh, and pretty much enacting a ritual to uh, start begins by stealing the life force essentially from another uh, prostitute. One that was, that was going to die. Right. But still, but still, you know, in better shape than the daughter. Right. I I noticed that, that really they talked about the daughter's symptoms and then suddenly the daughter was feeling better Mm -hmm. and eating and whatnot. And the other girl was eating and whatnot before. Right. And then she all of a sudden is in this like almost catatonic state, you know, drooling and babbling incoherently. So it's, they, they effectively like, just walks her out, yeah, and that was kind of interesting. And then they take her out to the hospital, right? Which is the hanging room. Which is the hanging room. Uh, and she doesn't die. Nope. <laughs> she is. She is uh, converted into a Jiangxi of sorts, right? There, there's, you know, there's a little um, artistic license in the story, mm-hmm. but uh, she, she, she definitely, not only does she become one and and start the psych, the process of revenge. Mm-hmm. She but, also resurrects all of the other prostitutes. Yes, <laughs> they're all buried out back, mm-hmm. and and as she does her thing. They all come up. It's like the uh, that the one scene in yeah, just pretty much every zombie movie where you know you get the the the, the camera closes in on the graveyard and then the hand comes up out of the out of the soil and uh, bodies start clawing their way out. Mm-hmm. In fact, that was a sequence in the story. Is yeah, the and, hands and- coming up out of the dirt. And then they all head to Madame Sing's house. Yep. Through the street and devouring anyone they come into contact with. Yes. Um, and that's pretty much how it ends. Yeah, it's, it's kind uh, of a kind of a kind of a great place to fade to black is a and and there you go. Yeah, gotta love sorcerers getting revenge. And then Lou Merriweather comes in and fixes it. Yeah, I was going to say, um, the shout out to, to Molly Tanzer and um, her novel Vermilion, mm-hmm. which I guess is also a, a weird Western. I have yeah. more experience with weird Westerns than I thought I did. Yeah. Um, which has a similar um, setting, I guess. Mm-hmm. It takes place in, in that area. San Francisco um, in Chinatown, part of it, mm-hmm. which is another recommendation if you enjoy weird westerns. Go, yep. go out, pick up Vermilion. Excellent, excellent book. Yeah, and if you can find uh, Joe Polar's Fatally Colored Gestures as well. All right, so yeah, not to detract from, from Kelda Critch's story, though. No, because it's a good story. You have to take some of the, the Chinese stuff with a grain of salt because um, there's definitely artistic license happening there. A little bit. But, you know, it is what it is. Right, right. 
And, and it, I will say this as well. It had kind of an old school, um, you know, that, that, that classic weird tales kind of vibe to it as well. Mm-hmm. So that, that helped add to the, the, the goodness factor of the story. I just sounded like Wes there. The goodness fucking every fucking episode. Every that one really put us in the bone zone. Yeah. Every episode, Wesley's gotta be mentioned. It's a it's it's a it's a trope. It's in my contract. It's in your contract. All right. The fourth story on the list is Innocence Abroad by Don Webb. Um now this is a an interesting little tale, um, as you don't really get the uh, the weird factor until about halfway in. Yeah, you, and you get like this, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying you get this weird mother daughter dynamic. You right. have a, 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 a this woman and her daughter, and the daughter is su- supposed to be fetching. Mm-hmm. Very fetching, and the mother is very jealous because her years have been wasted away, married to a mortician. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're going to Paris uh, to see the Eiffel Tower. Yep, going to Paris because that's that's what you do. Paris was the shit back in those days, and when you come into money, you go to Paris. That's right. Well, I mean, you know, transatlantic travel was ex- uh, expensive and big deal. You had is. to have a lot of leisure time. It still is. Um, well, that's true. It still is, but even back then, it was even more because it was, you know, weeks to get there. Yeah, slow boat. And apparently, so, they were leaving from San Francisco to get to Paris. Yeah, so, uh, it's quite a ways. And they, the canal wasn't dug by then, so you had to go all the way around. Right. Instead of taking the train east and going out of New York to right. Europe. You had to go around Africa and uh yeah, I don't think I don't know if the train if the two railroads were connected at that point. Oh, you take a stagecoach to where the railroad was. Yeah. Anyway, the fact remains is that that's not important. Right. They're going to Paris. They're going to Paris. And they and have a they have this weird dynamic where she doesn't really like her daughter. Right. Right. The daughter, the daughter is 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 fetching and and the mother, you know, is constantly telling her, you know, sorry, you know, the reason people are staring at you is because you're ugly, right? You know, and and that's that's horrible, right? It is. And so I so we find a- out we find out that the mother is horrible, right? And as soon as they get on the train, the husband, the mortician, does not go with them, right? And who it's, would want to, right? Instead, he goes straight back home and has a poker game with his buddies that night. Yeah, so all, all the, the movers and the shakers of their little town are right. in poker. The, the hanging judge who basically runs the town. Yeah, the mortician. The pharmacist, the pharmacist <laughs> who kicked the everybody high. He keeps everybody high because the judge got all the drug dealers out of town. So he now has the market yeah. on it. So he's like the dr- the pharmacist and the drug kingpin. Yeah, this is written two years before the tr- Trump presidency as well. Right, totally predicted it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, you—it's like the ultimate crony. 
yeah, crony capitalism is like sitting in this this room playing poker with each other. It's that classic Western trope of yeah. you know the the elite group of wealthy men yeah. who run the town. Yep, and they're sitting around having one of their regular friendly games of poker. Um, the mortician, of course, you know, more excited at this particular gathering because he's managed to get rid of the wife and daughter. Right, and it seems like he's like kind of the new guy. Yeah, he's kind of the new guy. He's coming, you know, it's like, hey, you've come into some money, huh? Let's take and, it. From and and we also find out he's a card counter. Yes, he's a card counter, and uh, you know, he's a bit of a cheat. He lets them win. Mm-hmm. Um, to ingratiate himself into their company, um, and he, he tells his story how he started. Yeah, how he how he has the money to send his. Uh, yeah, how he started making money, and it turns out that uh, a, a China Chinese person um, had died. He made the money on the burial from the county and whatnot, and he just keeps recycling this poor man's body. Yeah, he, he like. You know, disfigures the corpse and plants it somewhere, like in a mine. And they say, "Oh, it's somebody who died in, in the mine collapse." So the, he'll get paid to rebury the body, and he just keeps on digging it up and fucking right. with it. And right, and, and, and the you mentioned the mine. The mine was particularly clever because not only did you know he was given the mine uh, to as payment for burying somebody else. And it was a collapsed mine. It was a collapsed mine. So he takes the corpse, cuts it all, you know, dissolves it in quicklime uh, after he frames some Mormons for murder <laughs> um, and collects money off of their asses, too. Right. <laughs> like, uh, he's like, he gets paid twice on that one. It's a brilliant series of schemes to make money off this guy's corpse. And right. the kicker is, though, it's. It's not his idea. It's his wife's his idea. His fucking wife was like probably nagging the shit out of him to like make more money. Well, why don't you just rebury the corpse and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so he does it. Yeah, but the mine was probably the best scheme. And it yeah, was I mean, the, mine, the mine's going to make him more money. Right. So, nice. well, he owns the property, right. but the mine was collapsed. So he buries this body in, in a shaft he's got access to. He gets the county to come out, dig out the whole fucking mine for him at no cost. Right. To get the body, pays him to rebury the body. Right. Pays him to look into it, pays him to rebury the body. And so he's got he's got a check from the county for reburying the body. And he's got a functioning mine now, thanks to all the free labor he got from the county. Right. So the guy's a scumbag. Oh yeah, and a, a, a con artist extraordinaire, right. or or a a second tier con artist, because the wife is actually the brilliant strategist, right? Yeah, he comes out and says, "My wife did all, made it all possible." That's right, and and he's admitting all of this, and the judge is just sitting there like, "Hey, yeah, you're one of us. You got some mileage out of that body there." Congratulations to you, pal. Yeah, and, and you know they're they're all in it together. They all like feed off of each other's schemes. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, we're gonna let you're in the club, and uh, you know the. Meanwhile, <coughs> excuse me again. 
Meanwhile, the poor fellow who's been buried over and over and over again, who is currently disinterred and laid up at the uh, mortician's office. Ready to go again. Ready to go again for the next scheme. Uh, kind of gets up and realizes that he's dead. <laughs> but he was, and he, was, he, was a, he was an opium addict. Right. So he, he wakes up out of this opium dream, which he thinks is particularly um, vivid. Right. <laughs> and, and realizes he's de- he woke up dead. Yeah. And, and it's like, oh, that must not have been a dream. And, and and once again, this is this is a story. There's no explanation as to how, how he's animated. He just wakes up and you know puts his head back on and goes out into town because he's he he knows how he got there. And he's he's possessed of memory, all the memories of everything that's been done to his body. Right. Um and so he sets off on revenge. But it's very it's it's told in such a matter of fact way that you know in Webb's world, dead bodies just get up and go about their business. Yeah, it just it just it, it just happens. happens. Yep. So he he ends up enacting his revenge on the the two people who made it possible for him to be there. Three. Does he take a third? I thought he took the the pharmacist. And he took the pharmacist um, because the pharmacist was the one that sold him the drugs that killed him in the first place. Right. Um, then he goes after the mortician. Right. Then he goes uh, after wife, the wife. Right. Then he goes after goes to Paris. Yeah. He got there really quickly. Yeah. Well, we don't know how much time elapsed. Really. That's true. I mean, you know the the or corpse itself is dressed in the and skin the of the pharmacist and he's just got his eyes plugged into his skull. They don't really work or anything. So he's got like welding goggles or something down over them. It's a very steampunk corpse. Yeah. Um, and he's disguised, but so I can't imagine, you know, he took public transport all the way. He probably had to walk some, <laughs> but yeah, so he, he ends up, on the Eiffel Tower, yep. and uh, just as the shrew is looking over the the edge, wink. Well, no, no, no. The daughter is thinking about jumping. Oh, right. Because the mother has been on her, on her, and on her about how ugly she is, about how dull she is. Right. He'll never marry. Blah blah. He'll never marry and stuff like this. And she's actually thinking of jumping off the Eiffel Tower. Um, if everybody would just stop looking for a moment. She could get over and, and fall. Um, next thing you know, the mother is flying off the Eiffel Tower, and the daughter is uh, going down the elevator with the corpse. Yeah. And which which kind of leads you to, to an assumption that maybe the daughter was taken out of town because she was she was romantically involved with the Chinaman to begin with. That could be, um, you know, which would also explain why the mother kept on harping on her about being ugly and no man, men, why you? Mm -hmm. 
and you know, hey, why don't you, you know, and then the mother says, tells the druggist, why don't you sell him some bad opium? Hmm. Yeah, you're right. I didn't see that, but you know, that, that it's all really one, a lot of sense. one grand conspiracy because, you know, everybody else, yeah, was crooked, but, you know, the, the creature didn't bother with them. It just went after those three. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I feel and, like an idiot. And he and the daughter go off together. Very matter, very matter of fact, you know. She was in the elevator with him already on the way down before the mother hit the ground. Yep, I'll buy that for a dollar. So that's or that's five, my possibility. Five dollars because that's all this book cost me. Yeah, got a great deal on it at Necronomicon. Yeah, they they were they were selling all the Chaosium books at, for like five bucks. Yeah, all the very cheap books. Some unforeseen circumstances caused us to cut the episode a little short. Uh, Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next week with the next set of stories from Edge of Sundown. 